You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 177 of the Make It British podcast. Today I'm chatting to Debbie McKeegan from Texintel, who has over 30 years experience in fabric printing, specifically digital fabric printing. She's the founder of Texintel, a platform that provides fantastic knowledge and advice to the digital print industry. And she's also the host of the Texintel podcast. Debbie's here today to answer all of those burning questions that you might have about digital print, such as the types of digital print that are available, what the most sustainable form of digital print is, and why, oh, why is it so difficult to get print colours to match across different fabric bases? So if you find fabric printing, particularly digital fabric printing, confusing and frustrating, this episode should help to address many of your questions. So here we go, over to Debbie. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Make It British podcast. It's a pleasure. Uh, The reason I've got you on is I am getting so many questions at the moment from Mm -hmm. designers that I'm working with, completely flummoxed about digital printing, how it all works, which are the best methods to use, and you are my go-to digital print guru. So I wanted to get you on here to answer all the, the burning questions that everyone has. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go for it. Yep. So firstly, do you want to tell everyone what your background is? Because you've been working in the, the digital print industry for a very long time, haven't you? Yeah, I have actually, right from the very, very beginning. Um, I think printing's in my DNA. My dad was a printer. Um, my mum was a seamstress. Oh. My great-granddad was a tailor. Um, amongst other things, amongst uh, as well as being a boxer and a vicar in his life, so quite a diverse background. But um, yeah, so printing is in, in my DNA. Um, and my dad always tells this great story of when I was aged four and he thought, yep, she's definitely got the genes when I picked up a stone and drew a beautiful picture in the side of his um, brand new Ford Zodiac that was parked on the drive. <laughs> I didn't They're go nice those zodiacs though. They were, yeah. I didn't go down too well, but yeah, that's that's kind of, of of where it's where it started really. And of course, my dad was a printer, so you know, I was a kid growing up in the nineteen seventies. Mum was a seamstress, so factory holidays. You know, it was you know working life. So my mum was either working in the box room or in the factory, and I'd, I'd I'd be in production. And I think that's where the love of production comes from. I'd be sat in the da- the back of my dad's, you know. Well, he didn't own it. He worked for a, a huge, he worked for Kellogg's actually, a huge printing, obviously everybody knows who Kellogg's is, but they obviously print their yeah. own packaging and everything. I used to sit on the back of the Bobston, watch him doing everything that he was doing and then play in the factory canteens, Christmas parties, all that kind of stuff when British manufacturing was quite different. So yeah, I guess, yes. yeah, I guess that's where it all started. Um, that's where the love and the, I just love everything. I love the noise, the the teamwork, the collaboration that goes on inside production. Um, yeah, the wet floors, which you don't have now, of course, with digital, <laughs> the steam, the sweat, no. all of it. Yeah, absolutely love all of it. Um, and I trained as a, I studied as a textile designer, I studied surface pattern prints, so I'm a creative at heart. Um, and my first job actually was in Coates Viella, which you'll remember was a huge, huge group. Yes. 
in the UK, absolutely massive. And I was very lucky there because that gave me vertical training. So I started in the design studio at Dormer at first, doing bed linen, creating designs on the drawing board. You know, when the photocopier was new, that was, you know, way back when. Yeah. <laughs> Showing your age now. Yeah, I am, exactly. sorry. I remember those days. Yeah. Uh, light, <laughs> and light boxes for, I mean, it's just incredible, light boxes for drawing um, room sets. You know, you used to do a little sketch and then pull it up over onto the top of the light box and then paint it all in and take that out to the buyers. But what it did was gave me that, insight from design literally what I do now design all the way through to production because as a designer working in that group you followed your pattern from design to styling to showing it to the buyers and then taking it through to production talking to the team about seconds changing designs so that they were easy or better to print with you know low cabbage rates um, and then follow it all the way through to even styling and photography the whole thing so it just gave me a whole circular knowledge of, of the pro process. That was kind of late 80s, early 90s. Um, and Coates Viola actually bought a microdynamics computer, which was cost an absolute fortune way back when. And I just became absolutely addicted to it. And I became the kind of go-to person there. And that's where my CAD journey started, really, way back when. Ah, so microdynamics being one of the very early CAD systems that people used to use. Back yeah, in the, yeah. What, along late 80s, with, early 90s. Yeah, that's right. Along with, um, and they were based in the Manchester Simons Park. Um, and to be honest, what I did actually do, I, came, I became so addicted to it. I wanted to know how it worked. So I actually went to work for them for a couple of years. Um, and that worked out really well because I really started to look at code and really... That, understand everything they needed somebody to teach to tell this is before photoshop so they needed somebody to tell them you know i was like yes we need a ruler on the screen yes you have able to need to pick the colors out you know they're like simplest disciplines yeah. of design it was like it was great so yeah that's that's kind of where i started and then that addiction has just grown and grown and grown so following the journey from analog all the way through to digital with CV, Coates Viola. And then in 1998, bought my first digital textile printer way back when too. And that was for sampling production. And I think what you have to remember there is at that point, you're printing on the old Bimakis. Some of them still in production, actually. Um, but they're printing at like two metres an hour, up to eight metres an hour. Yeah, they were really slow, weren't they? It's like it was just used dry. for sampling. Yeah. Yeah. testing wasn't it yeah and that, that's exactly yeah. what we were using it for we were using it in a huge group um to do sampling because even at that point the late 90s what was happening in the industry was the buyers would not commit to stock until they'd, they'd seen all of the samples etc cetera, etc cetera. but to get to that yeah. point you know you're talking bed linen you're talking at three or four sets of screens sometimes you know with 10 colors in each set thousands of pounds just to get to a sample so digital was the perfect solution as it still you know as it very much is is now so yeah did that in 1998 and then had our own printing company for 15 years pioneering digital textile printing that was really exciting and really really good fun that was digitex wasn't it yeah 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 and um yeah. surface pattern print that was called yeah yeah and then in 2018 we stopped printing um and we formed Texintel. so yeah so that that kind of legacy gives me an incredible insight into the workings of the whole industry, really, you know, of all the people I've worked with over the years, all the different styles of businesses from fashion all the way through to interiors, through to events, through to architect specifiers, everybody really. And also because we were pioneering that technology, when we started, there were two bureaus in the UK. 
one of them being, well, actually maybe three. We had RA Smart and we had Doug, lovely Doug over at the Silk Bureau. That was it. Yeah. And look at how... They know, were the only two companies yeah, in the yeah, UK yeah. doing digital yeah, yeah. textile printing. And is that because they switched over from doing more traditional screen printing? I think in Doug's case, no. I think he, he saw, as we did, a niche to supply the industry with short orders using that technology back then. Ah. Yeah, that's really what it was how it grew and of course they they have now now all grown into being you know sizable production businesses as the industry itself has continued to grow so yeah um and then 2018 started text intel because as a designer and a creative and having been in that center of that orbit of an emerging industry as it's unlocking and growing and how it virally just moves and migrates around so many different sectors it's really hard to find the right information at the right time without, you know, putting your putting putting look on Google, you know, Google great, great search engine. Yeah. Who wants to put your finances, you know, on a women of prayer on something that's not tested or trusted? So um yeah, so we decided that in 2018, because you know, a lot of it was my little black book, but I don't have a little black book anymore in that I can just be totally open and collaborative in the industry. And I, you know, it's my personality, actually. It's in my DNA. It's where I'm actually happiest right now, networking and helping people. And, you know, give it, but they, you'll know this. There are so many incredible voices in our industry and they don't get a moment in the spotlight yeah. or in the sunshine. And, you know, my podcast and the interviews that I do and the visitors, um, yeah, it's all about connecting people and sharing knowledge, which we need to do. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, because I suppose I think the print industry as well it is for an outsider. So for a designer who maybe is a garment designer mm-hmm. or even you know home textiles, but isn't from a print background, hasn't hasn't studied print, hasn't come up through it in the way you have. I think it can be a really confusing topic. There's so many different types of print. A lot of the language is quite confusing if you don't know it's quite can be quite technical I mean you're obviously a very technical person yeah no where does a designer start these days obviously at text intel looking at your (laughs) your website you have information don't you yeah 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 we have we have a lot of um, graduates and students that sign on and again we tailor make our information so it's kind of beginners and intermediate and advanced you know it's a whole soup of knowledge and innovation for everybody I think for for education and academia, it's it's an interesting story. I think if where we are, where we find ourselves now in 2021, there's a huge proportion of the academic sector that actually have digital textile printing machinery in their learning environments, with you know very very mm. passionate academics um, helping and technicians helping to innovate and helping to teach them about the future. Um, that's very 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 important. Um, and what you've seen increasingly, and, and I, this is. Be definite, definitely been accelerated by the pandemic is looking further afield too because you know textiles is no longer just about print print is just one portion of a whole supply chain and students as they move out following their education into into jobs they need to have more information about the microclimates that surround each of those sectors and be more aware of technology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the average fashion designer, it's no longer about sketching, is it? It is. Of course, of it, it is in that you have to do that to generate your own style and your own innate creativity. But you've got to understand um, 3D technologies, avatars, how those are used. You've got to understand sizing and automated sizing. So, 
yeah, the whole thing is just becoming digital at every touch point, really. And I think the next yeah. generation of designers are going to be incredibly powerful because they have they are responsible for so many of those touch points, which, you know, way back when you were not, you know, as a designer or a freelance designer years ago, you would create the design and repeat and then it would be handed over into a whole cycle of production. Now the digital yeah. designer, yeah. yeah, if you think about it, the digital designer is creating it, pre-prepping it, layering it, embedding all the correct data so it can go on to production without causing issues and problems. So, yeah, it's a really great time for, for designers. I'm really excited about the creative industry. And we're really good at it, aren't we, here in the UK? We are, yeah. Well, that's the, we're definitely not short of ideas. But what, what, what does someone do if they've not come from a design background and they don't know how to use all the technology? What would you recommend they do? Can they can they rely on the the actual printing companies themselves to do that part for them, or should they employ a designer who has that experience that can prepare their designs ready to be printed? I think it's a difficult question, Kate, because you know our skill sets are all so different, aren't they? You know, it's sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Um, so I think it's it's a mix of both, really. I think it's all about competence and um, confidence as well, really, in that space. You know, design is a fine art. You know, a, a trained commercial print designer understands all of the disciplines of how to actually transfer it from a sketch, whether that's digital or physical, through that production workflow. But they do so much more than that because they visually look at it and say, OK, is this going to be a curtain? Is it going to be a wallpaper? Is it going to be a, a piece of apparel? And they create the design, the flow, the content and the colour balance accordingly. And they do it naturally. You're trained to do that. So I think it depends on your own your own confidence level and how you want to get there. I think the partnerships that you have in your commercial life are, are your stakeholders. It has to be collaborative and you have to invest in those relationships. So, you know, for anybody out there, have a chat with your printer. Do your research. You've said this many, many times. You've got to research your supply chain. You've got to ask the right questions and you've got to be confident. And printers also have to do the same. Otherwise... It's a recipe for disaster and nobody get nobody meets their expectations. I know a lot of people struggle getting colour matching right with their digital printing. Mm -hmm. Any tips there for how people can best improve on that? I know it's impossible to ever get it perfect because there's so many different variables that can happen. But yeah, what sure. are your tips for success there? I think, again, it's a communication and knowledge issue and it's also to do with expectations. So I think it's really, really important that both parties in that contract understand what they're trying to achieve i think from the designer's point of view you have to remember that you're looking at something in a different light source completely to where to the from the out the input to the output is completely different regardless of whether your screens can calibrated especially if you're working independently with a print bureau if you're working in a in a mill you can you can absolutely control that from start to finish so you get perfect color calibration absolutely can do that right now and the machines you know will intuitively keep adjusting that too with rip technologies no problem at all but it's so much harder when you are moving around different print bureaus so you might have a really great print provider that you love for your cellulose fabrics but they just don't stock that synthetic that you want to use for a, a legging or a, a towel or you know whatever it is within your your work set so what you end up doing is you're moving to different hosts it's like driving different cars they've all got different machines they've all got different ink settings they'll have different inks from different suppliers 
So I think where you where you touch on that, you have to sample. If you're moving across different substrates and moving across different vendors, then you have to ask them for a sample. It's very, very, very important. Um, and lots of the print bureaus will do little swatch samples now for, you know, cheapest chips. Fantastic. Really, really do that. But I think study the websites of the um, partners that you choose look at all the technical information, make sure you prepare your files in the right format and embed the right profiles when you save your files down. If it's not clear what those are, ring up and ask. They'll happily send you those technical specs. Follow those. Check, check and double check the files that you send. Don't send somebody a digital file and a paper print and say, I want you to match the paper print, please, and expect them to do it for no cost at all because all of this costs money um, and you can't expect your digital printer to spend, you know, a couple of hours in their pre-press studio sorting out your order if it's a 10-metre order. They'll happily do it for a 50 or 100-metre order, but um, if there isn't enough manpower in the world to fine-tune um, small sample um, colour production. So I think, yeah, To sum in summary, communicate, get to know your partnerships, sample where necessary. Don't expect the same colours to be to happen without um, any adjustment, say, on a, on a, from a polyester velvet, even to a cotton velvet. You're just not going to get it. And then, of course, quite often people want to do a wall covering that matches that too. And again, you're going to get drop different substrates and different surfaces regardless of whether they are for interiors or fashion take color differently and you have to factor that in and work closely with your vendors so that everybody's really really happy it's one of the big bugbears and it's one that destroys so many incredible commercial relationships because there's nothing more frustrating than getting a 15 meter order that doesn't match the 15 meters before or match the print sample or the paper sample that you sent over to um, to your print vendor. So yeah, it's all about communication, knowledge, and talking to people, really. Even in, in, a, in, a, even in a digital world, we have to do that, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. You could talk for weeks on colour, Kate. You really could. Yeah, yeah. I know. Another question that I want to ask you is well, Tencel seems to be yeah. the kind of sustainable fabric of the moment that yeah. everyone seems to be talking about. Like the wonder fabric, it's sustainable, it feels like silk. Yeah. And yet there's not many printers in the UK that seem to want to touch it or have it in stock. What's the reason for that? It's availability. And it'll be availability mm. for um, coating and pre-coating. You know, we touched on this before, didn't we? 4% of the whole fashion mar marketplace. When you actually look at the digital differences in digital processing. So most digital print machines, especially on the cellulose route, um, have to use pre-coated fabrics, okay? So it's about supply and demand. Until the volume increases, it's gonna be hard to get hold of those fabrics in the stock holdings you want. So if you wanna buy, as a digital printer, if you wanna buy 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters and put it into stock, you can get that, but you've got to remember that when a fabric is pre-coated for digital printing, it only lasts, that coating is only good for three or four months. So you've got oh, to... Oh, really? Yeah, it okay. goes off. It, it degrades over time. So, And as it degrades over time, it causes colour fluctuations, which is all part of the colour conundrum. So it's hard. Yeah, so you're keeping everything in dates. It's, like it's, it's a recipe. It's like cooking. It's exactly the same thing. 
And I think that's where you will see more and more and more of those kind of lensing um, wood or wood origin pulp fibers coming in. And they've been in the supply chain for a very, very, very long time in denim industry. They've not specifically been available for print bureaus other than digital printers who were buying in bulk from the mills. And then they have the finishing in-house to coat themselves. That's all part of the conundrum. If you can coat yourself, it's a lot easier because you can just coat to keep up your minimum stocks and everyone would know what those rolling stocks might be. But if you're looking to outsource, you kind of get into the, the, the same territory as buying our pet sustainable fabrics. The, the bee moths are buying it all up and it's really hard to buy in short orders. Yeah. You've obviously seen the printing industry change so much, particularly like rapidly in the last sort of 10 or 20 mm-hmm. years. Do you think we'll completely get rid of screen printing and the traditional forms of printing altogether in just in replace of, of digital? Or are there times when you would still use some of the old traditional types of printing rather than digital printing? I think where we find ourselves now is on a, an interesting tipping point because there is there is no question that up to a thousand meters, it's cheaper to print digital currently. Um, over a thousand meters. Is me- it thousand meters? A thousand really? Meters, that, yeah. yeah. That many. Yeah. Well, no matter how many screens that you've got. So even if you, if you were just, you know, it was a single color. Yeah, single color it would like, still be cheaper. Different scenario, but the average textile design's probably got eight eight colors in it, eight to twelve colors yeah. in it, really. Um, and then you're talking across different colorways and things as well. So. Yeah, it's an interesting one. But where we find ourselves now is that we're kind of at a tipping point for so many different reasons. And I think that's because as an industry, whether it's fashion or interiors, the buyers are so so focused on price per square meter. And that's the wrong question. It's about total cost of ownership. It's about the total cost of stock, the cost of, you know, lockout, not lockouts, um, closeouts, 40% of the fashion industry, you know, 40% of all stock goes to discount. Well, okay, print on demand, make it just in time and adjust your margins because otherwise we'll never move to a sustainable footing. And I think that's where you see this switch at the moment happening um, in the textile industry, which has grown massively over over the last, um, just even in the last 12 months, really, just talking to people in the trade, the machine sales are up, print volumes might still be down, but that's no surprise because volumes are down in retail. So once all of that picks up together, it's, um, it's gonna be a really, really interesting scenario. And it's a, a, an industry that's set for huge growth. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting conundrum, really. As far as will it switch over completely? Yeah, I think it will actually eventually. Do you? I do. Yeah, I do. I think, you Mm. know, once you look at the cost of single pass, basically, which for for your listeners is we talk about inkjet printing and most of them are where the the fabric's moving and the carriage is moving and it's going right to left. Yeah, if that makes sense. So when you talk about single pass machinery, you're talking about massive banks of heads, like 360 heads in these huge machines. And they can churn it print at, you know, between 600, 700, 1200 meters per hour. I mean, it's just so, so... Gosh, compared to how they used to be, that's incredible, isn't it? So in 20 years, going from like two meters an hour and thinking that was amazing, which of course it was, we've accelerated so fast. So yeah, it's it's a tipping point, really. If you look at single pass machinery, the, the super, super fast, which is, you know, 
equal or even faster now than rotary production. A lot of that is out in the Far East. Some of it's in Europe, a lot of it's in the Far East. So once again, what you're seeing is that, you know, the supply chain in the Far East having to react for market demands because the West demands print and quick. So they don't have they don't have that three month, four month sourcing window of sending designs off for separation, then the back and two, back and two with mini sampling and colouring and da 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 and all of that unsustainable sampling which costs a fortune. So so much has yeah. changed. Um, and it is becoming designed virtually, really. But to do that we have to have really great standards. So yeah, I think I think it's gonna tip towards digital very, very, very quickly over the next five to ten years. And I think, you know, as the machines get quicker quicker cheaper faster more availability all of those things you know in in a marketplace digital is still only six percent in and i think meterage last year was something like two billion meters printed worldwide so we're still really small in the overall scheme of textile printing it's got a long way to go do you know what it is in the uk because there certainly seems to be quite a few digital printers springing up in the UK, yeah, it's, it's, I would imagine it's a lower investment than setting up a big rotary printing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. as a, an example, you know, Laura Ashley, famous brand, unfortunate we lost those recently, but, you know, she started her brand from the kitchen table following the traditional commercial route, yeah, which took years and years and years. If you look at the growth of a company like Printful, who were based originally in Lithuania seven years ago, they were, they were registered as a unicorn just last week, having grown their business to, in seven years, from the kitchen table to 220 million, now have a value of a billion. Wow. They're a unicorn predicted to be worth a billion pounds. So that just shows you, you know, digital enables so many incredible commercial opportunities for anybody in the industry to manufacture yourselves. And what they are, they're basically um, the future. They are a smart hub they are a factory of the future, and I think that's what it's going to become, satellite production with um, white-label third-party fulfilment, but done automatically and totally digitally. For those yeah. that don't know, Printful is it's print-on-demand, isn't it? So you send your designs and they'll put them on a, on a variety of different, yeah. almost yeah. template items. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, all sorts of different products, but they're also very much focused on um, nearshore manufacturing, so their hubs are yep. gradually popping up all over the world. So it's you're going to come to a time where you you buy online, but your production is as close to the as close to the consumer as possible. Uh, all of which, of yep. course, reduces carbon, speeds up, speeds yeah. up delivery, and reduces costs as well. So yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on. A huge market demands, um, huge changes in the marketplaces, and incredible innovation throughout the textile industry from fiber all the way through to print over to apparel avatars big data everything really if anybody that's listening is is new to printing or would like to understand digital printing better basically the technology is using inkjet technology and piezo heads so it's basically kind of a little like your little desktop printer but a lot more complicated. <laughs> it's spraying ink onto the, either the surface of the fabric or the, the surface of paper. Um, and the whole industry is built around um, two different platforms, kind of. It's built around ink specific ink sets. So names that you'll have heard of is dye sublimation, pigment reactive, acid, dispersed, 
those kind of things. But they split into being formed for different categories. So with the exception of one. Um, so most of them go down either the cellulose, the natural route for printing onto natural fabrics because they need different preparations and different finishing. And then, of course, you've got the synthetic route for um, polyesters, etc. Um, anything man-made, really. And the exception to that rule and the ink set that's going to grow the most, um, and one that I'm very, very familiar with because of my history over in the Bedlin in all of those years ago, is pigment because it's pigment and dye sub as well, really, but pigment is waterless. And if you look at print volume worldwide in analog, 50% of that marketplace is still is pigment now. So that gives you an indication of how digital technologies will start to transform that massive chunk of the industry, which it previously struggled to do, this gets a bit too technical. I might bore your listeners, but the um, the particle size... I'm loving it. <laughs> the, the particle size, basically, of the pigments was too big for the ink heads, so it would cause blockages, thousands of different things. So there was there was lots and lots of innovation that needed to be, to be done there to make the inks for um, pigments more stable, which, of course, they now are. Um, and we'll see huge, huge growth in that, in that area because it's a waterless technology. So, so, so important. Um, as we move forward to a sustainable footing, really, we have to go waterless. So, yeah, lots and lots and lots of different things going on there. Um, so you've got all of those, that ink set doing cellulose, and then on the synthetic side, a huge growth as well in um, dye sublimation, which I think off the top of my head is about 60 to 70% of the current digital print workspace. And that's because... Is it that much? Yeah, it's Because huge. of sports clothing and things like that. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, sports and fashion too, you know. You know, if yeah. you look at textile technology, Kate, you'll know this, you know, you will trot off to Zara or wherever and we'll see a lovely print and we'll feel it and we'll kind of think that that's a, a natural fabric, but it's not. It's a man-made fabric and the innovations in fibre technology are now delivering synthetics that feel like faux naturals. No, that feel like naturals. They are faux. Um and I think that has helped grow that sector massively. It's also a huge part of the events industry as well, of course. Um, yeah. Signage. And yeah, banners, I remember that from my trade show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah signage, retail graphics, all of that. So, yeah, huge, huge, huge part of the sector. Um, and again, you know, dice up waterless technology. You're using paper, mm. but lots of innovations across that entire supply chain to, um, to minimise waste whether it's energy or consumables in the industry. And I think but who are the main printers in the UK that can print with pigment at the moment? Um, digitally. Digitally. It depends where, where where you're at really for different volumes. I mean I think a lot of the bureaus are printing pigment, a lot of them. Um, mm. you know, if you look at um print fab, for example, you know, you can work with people like Stanfast and Barracks who will print low, small orders and large orders, you know, because at the end of the day, and I think you're going to see that more and more because at the end of the day, the order is, is basically a skew, isn't it, really? It's just one part of a production cycle. So as we start to automate our workflow in how we process orders that are coming in either online or, or via phone, there are less touch points, there are less human hands, which allows the larger scale mills to actually deal with small scale 
buyers. You know, you'll remember this, you know, a print buyer. If I wanted to commission a design to a mill years ago, Rotary, 2,000 minimum metres in each colourway. Yeah, I remember those days. It was yeah. massive. In each colourway, exactly. In every colourway. You know, and yeah. you don't, we don't do this anymore, but then we'd have, I don't know, four or five colourways in the interior industry. You know, still do to a certain extent mm. in the pattern books. Massive investments. But digital has kind of unlocked all of that creativity, hasn't it? Um, and yeah. the last... And someone like Stanfast and Barracks, yeah. they've been around for a very long very, time. Very, very, very long time. Doing traditional printing. Yeah. So are they almost entirely... I haven't been to Stanfast and Barracks before. I'd love to go. Are they almost entirely digital now? 80%. 80% volume wow. digital, yeah. What are the total figures in the UK for, for printing digital versus... I suppose analog, for want of a better word, are we more heavily digital just because it's been a it's been something that people have been investing think, in recently? I think there's kind of a different answer to that actually. In fact, I think the UK printing industry, as you know, was decimated in the '90s, and so much of it disappeared. I think what you now see is the re-establishment of the print industry here in the UK because of digital technologies. Definitely, that's that you know, mm. and that unlocks reshoring and all of those other things. So it would be difficult to land on the absolute percentages um, because they're just not they're just not widely available um, per just this just this one no, yeah, just this I one know country. What you mean. It's difficult to land on stuff like that, yeah. really. But it's definitely, yeah, it's it once again it revitalizes the industry and textile printing within the UK is becoming widely available. I mean just look, I was one of two. <laughs> My family were one of two. And look how many we have now, all incredible businesses with state-of-the-art technology, printing beautiful, beautiful prints. Um, and, you know, democratising the creative, which I is the thing that I love about it all the most. You know, anybody can rock up. And if you've got talent, ambition, drive, and you're willing to work hard, anybody can make it big in this industry if you're passionate yeah. about it. You know, any designer, you know, you don't, it, it, you know, for any any kind of younger graduates that were listening, I would encourage them to work within the industry first, very very much, and then you know, you, it's it's we talked about this off air before. It's you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> and I think yeah, no. you just don't do you. And I think it's so important to have mentors in your life in your early development when you graduate and move into the industry. You just cannot be commercial experience, but beyond that, you will. Yeah. You also see people, you know, I mean, it's very much a millennial thing, isn't it, really, having multiple income streams. Lots of people have work full time as accountants or whatever, but they might have a really creative online business selling their photography or selling cushions or do, doing whatever they're doing. So it's it's not frowned upon anymore. It's not seen as being disloyal. Every, anybody can have as many businesses as they like. So I think it's fantastic that digital um, facilitates that across the board from you know, from a small brand to the to the behemoths. Anybody can be anything they want to be. Just have to work hard and have talent. Yeah. Definitely. Well, if anything, I think it's easier for the smaller brands now to flip things and, and move more quickly because they will small, print small quantities and trial things and test things and listen to their customers more yeah. directly. One of the, one of the sorry, Kate, right. one of the things I missed off there was D2G, direct-to-garment printing as well. Incredible yeah. growth, incredible growth in that sector. And I think they have really kind of pioneered the the footprint of print on demand, and that is very much kind of where Printful started too. Or they 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 do roll to roll now, and they also do you know they do print leggings and swimwear and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, 
But D2G has kind of really democratized that sector. And, you know, they've, um, there are lots of millionaires over in the States who have set up these incredible T-shirt printing businesses, all third party, just through an app, you know, just and it, if you just look at how easy it is now to build a website, you know, using Squarespace or Shopify or whichever of those great platforms that you choose, it's all widget based, you know, you can really create a canvas for your own style, your own creativity, the image of your brand. But you don't have to stock anything and you don't have to make anything because you can slot your cart, your shopping cart directly into somebody like Printful or, you know, Contrado as well here in the UK. Fantastic business for making print on demand textile components. But you can actually sell that through your own brand. No, your, your consumer is unaware of who your manufacturer is, but you don't have to be part of that journey in that the, the goods are drop shipped direct to your consumer. So you basically are a creative with access to your own supply chain through um, through a web portal, which are the, the new smart factories or micro factories, as they are called often. Um, and yeah. for me, that's... So exciting. It's so really exciting. It's a great it? time. Yeah. For, yeah. Yes. No, it's really... I mean, yeah. I, I've been excited about it since 19, 1980s. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> brilliant. I'm so sorry. I'm very patient. Yeah, no, I have. I've just like absolutely loved print. And you just, as a creative, I think, you just see the incredible possibilities. And we can now print onto mm. any surface, you know, leather, glass, everything, ceramics, you name it. No surface yeah. is safe. You can print onto anything at whatever volume you want. And I think in that, in that kind of vendor chain, over time now, you will continue to see more and more and more entrepreneurial businesses pop up to serve new marketplaces, really, whether that is... Which in turn, yeah, sorry. I suppose, will help bring the prices down. Because yeah. one of the challenges I still think, particularly for garment designers, is still the cost per metre of yes. digitally printed fabric. Yeah. Do you think that will start to come down as more and more people enter the market, machines get faster. What is the main reason that it ends up quite expensive? Is it still the cost of the ink, a bit like when you're printing at home with your home, you know, printer in your office? I th yeah, I think it's... The inks are so I expensive. Think it's technical investment. I think inks have dropped massively just in the last five years. But it's also about buying power, isn't it? You know, an interesting statistic for you. Like if you just, just look at fabric, for example, okay? So um, the global fabric marketplace is worth um, 228.6 billion, yeah? Um, that's what it will be in 2025. Mm. It's currently 1.65 billion. So that shows you the growth in the market sector. You know, you're growing, I don't know, just short of another billion in, 100 billion in that figure, up until 2025. So the fashion sector is a huge emerging marketplace. But if you look at digital textiles, digital printing within that market sector, it's like 4% or something of the whole total marketplace. So it's not they don't have the buying power. So unless in any commercial yeah. marketplace, and unless you have the volume and you have the buying power, it's very hard to match the margin of a mass industrial producer and that's kind of the conundrum the conundrum i don't know is that a new word that's the conundrum <laughs> for the industry isn't it really you've got this tipping point and that's where where i always come back to it's the wrong question to ask the price per square meter because you've got to look at total mm. cost of ownership as a brand you know you're not having to carry stock you're not having to create screens you're um you're 
your risk is greatly reduced because you're not having to discount. You're not losing 40% of your margin at the end of the sale. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of reasons, really. That is so much the, the benefit that I try and, you know, mm. encourage people to manufacture in the UK for just that exact reason, that you're not sitting on a huge amount of stock and you can be so much more flexible. Well, and it will be great, you know, to see the like the more digital printers that we have in the UK, the more those lead times as well will start to come down because there does still need to be, seems to be a supply and demand issue as there's still more people that want to print than there are UK printers available. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think there are, but I think that, you know, the, the machinery that's currently in the UK is not used to full capacity. Um, and there are more machines being sold all the time. So they're, they're not running at max, Brilliant. you know, most of them are not running at max speed. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely more, more capacity in the UK than we're currently using. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it is about supply and demand. It's about component prices. Um, and it's about finding that equilibrium and for the, the clients and the consumers to stop really asking what the price is per square meter. To a certain extent, of course, you've got to do that because you're working on your costing for a garment or a product. But you have to look at your overall business model as well, definitely, um, especially when you start mm. to lose, you know, bricks and mortar stores and you're trading online. The overhead scenarios are completely different, totally, totally different. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the challenges or one of, one of the things I know that a lot of the brands that I work with, they want to find sustainable fabric bases. Mm. And of course, I know that's kind of how long is a piece of string is how do you define sustainable? Yeah. But what are your thoughts on the availability of fabric bases and which ones are the most sustainable and maybe, you know, the, the least detrimental to the environment out of all of the, the different types of bases? And and how can um, there doesn't seem to be so much of an availability of these in the UK and they're, they're obviously all imported for the most part. Is that true? Yes, it will be. Yeah, um, they will all be imported. Mm. Um, I think supply and demand again, and I think what you see here um, is the bee moths buying it up. So that, for example, thirty percent of organic cotton isn't organic cotton. There is so much greenwashing. I've heard that there is so much greenwashing yep. going on in this industry. I've heard stories of the Chinese Chinese marketplace making plastic bottles to sell to people to recycle to make our pet fabrics. I mean, if you just look at the amount of Ugh. our pet that there is circulating, that to be frank, and we'll come to this point in a minute, actually, because digital printers can't get their hands on it. And they can't get their hands on it because the BMOS, you know, the big guys are buying up massive, massive capacities yeah. of, of, of the yeah. fabrics which are currently trendily sustainable. I mean, you, you do yeah. also have... It's like Boohoo and their... Yeah, eco-friendly range, which is recycled polyester. Yeah, you know, you, yeah, you have which is the plastic bottles. You have to question it, and you have to drill back down because people try to oversimplify the word sustainability and the word recycling. You know, if you look at the core components of the fibers of that product, what technologies were used to recycle it? You know, there's there's absolutely no transparency whatsoever in. In it at the moment, it's impossible for somebody to do the due diligence and go all the way back to origin through to our pet. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, a polyester um, pellet is a polyester pellet. Once it's been smelted yeah. back down and recycled, you've got absolutely no idea of where that came from. It has no DNA left. Yeah. So it is, it is a huge, huge problem. I think there's lots of people working really, really, really hard to sort this out. And I think... Um, we need regulation in order to do that. 
Um, I think if... Agreed, yeah. We do, and we need standards. I think the industry, from the digital printer's perspective, struggles to get their hands on those volumes because there isn't enough in the marketplace at the right volume. And, you know, at the end of the day, they don't want to... You know, it's okay moving to an on-demand world, but for me, this it goes round and round in my head all the time. It's like, are we not just playing musical chairs in that all we're doing is moving the risk further down the supply chain again? So as the retailer reduces demand, re- reduces risk by moving to a print-on-demand business model, they're pushing it back into the supply chain. Now... Supply chains are sourcing routes are bought years, you know, cotton. They're bought six to 12 months ahead. They're done on tender. Um, they buy the crop. You know, my husband used to buy the crop the year before. All of all of those sorts of things. What we're now asking us, our printers to do is to switch on and off production. And in order to do that, depending on volume, they have to hold a lot more stock than they did before. And especially in the current pandemic, where it's been a nightmare for so many people to keep different fabrics in stock um, because sourcing routes have been totally disrupted worldwide. And I think that's I think that's an issue that, you know, it's a conundrum again that, that needs to be really thought out. Total cost of ownership and who's carrying the risk here, really. Ultimately, Ultimately, whichever way you look at it, it's better. It's so much better for the planet and it's much, much more sustainable because we're moving to an on-demand production model. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, as, as we see this industry growing, as I said, we're 6% in. As we see it growing, you're going to see so many different amendments to the standard business model and different entrepreneurial business models too because you've got the mills who, who are completely different to... Um, digital textile printers running bureaus who might have a fantastic suite of machines, you know, with stenters, steamers, all of those things, and totally understand the, the demographics of textile technology. But equally, you'll also, in the bureau loop, have, you know, entrepreneurial smaller businesses who are um, have a couple of machines or, you know, a duty and a standby machine producing thousands of metres a week in a very, very small space, you know, a bit bigger than a garage or a home office. And then, you know, that's happening. And then you've also, amazingly, which I think is fantastic, got designers, you know, like Richard Quinn using Epson technology, you know, and actually printing himself. And very, very... Oh, does he do his own printing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Fantastic story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think you're going to see that more and more and more because... Yeah, you know, if if you look at if we, if you go way back when when we bought our our first printers, I'm trying to think how much one of the TXs was. It was about I don't know sixty TX three. It's about that was about eighty thousand, maybe maybe about fifty sixty thousand pounds each. You know, you can buy a digital printer now for twelve fifteen thousand pounds that will print at twenty four thirty meters an hour. Yeah, so it's it's cheaper than a second hand car. So why wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah, why got control over your own production? That's, that's exactly the point, Kate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. It's about controlling your own production, controlling your own margins, controlling your own availability, definitely. And you see, you see it more and more. Designers who, um, Gillian Arnold, for example, fantastic designer, um, investing in HP stitch technology herself and printing herself because 
she was having problems getting products out of a marketplace that was being squeezed over the last year because of COVID, really. It's an unusual situation. But, you know, at the end of the day, if she's selling products online, you know what it's like. You've got customer loyalty is really hard to hold on to. So when you sell something online, it has to be in stock and you have to deliver it really quickly. Then that client comes back to you. So really, really important for continuity of sale. So you'd see designers all over the place doing that. And as the technology becomes more intuitive and more intelligent, you know, like it'll stop now. Not all of them, but some of them will stop now when a head drops out. So you, you don't print any more waste. Or they'll have electronic eyes to help you with colour management, in on-built spectrophotometers, oh. all of those great things, which... Oh, wow. Yeah, but basically taking it to your desktop, really. We started the conversation talking about... Yeah. It's a bit similar to a desktop printer. You know, I'm, I do not wish to insult all the incredible innovators and chemists and everything else that I deal with daily in, in my job. But, yeah, it's it's about simplifying the industry so it's intuitive, reduces less waste, uh, and is available across that whole demographic from a single user to a huge single pass mill, you know, printing millions and millions and millions of, of metres per year. It's an incredible yeah. journey. You mentioned... HP stitch technology. Mm-hmm. Fill me in what that is. Do you say HP stitch technology? Yeah, HP stitch is the name of the... It's basically dice sublimation printing. It's just that it's the name of the brand. Yeah, yeah. And um, they, were, they were new a couple of years ago, maybe nearly three years ago now, actually, to the dye sublimation market, moving over from latex, um, which is traditionally for wallpaper, actually, but you can actually print fabrics and, every, and leather with latex very, very, very successfully. Um, so yeah, and there's you know it's lots and lots of innovation coming through. And if you were to look at the machinery and equipment manufacturers, you know such as Epson and HP um, and Cornet, for example, what they've all been working hard at, really, really working hard at, is not just simply reinventing analog technology as a print process. They've gone so much further than that. They're actually delivering a new solution for printing, which produces a printed surface which is you cannot tell the difference between whether it was analog or digital they are totally reinventing printing and they're they're democratizing it for anybody at any part of that process whether you're an independent or as i said you know a, a huge huge mill it's so exciting it's really good yeah, it is. So the, the sorts of machines you're talking there then, so a designer could invest in something themselves for sort of £10,000. Less. And be doing their own print. Yeah, absolutely. Less. Less. I mean, at Epson, for example, um, just kind of late last year, they launched um, a new desktop Dyser printer. Uh, it's £400. So you know, you know how you. Oh, wow. you, oh I want to get. I know, one. I know, I know. I need to start playing again. Actually, yeah, I do miss that. Do you still do your own fabric printing yourself? Have you got no. a little printer in your garage? No, no, somewhere? no, no, you, no, not no. at all. No, I don't. No, yeah. really, no printing. No actual printing happening in your life at all. No. Do you go to see other printers to get a fix? Every Absolutely. So I can't. Yeah, I cannot. Not, <laughs> well, this prints is still a huge part of my life. I visit, you know, technology providers and mills and all sorts of things all over the place all the time. I couldn't be without it. But no, don't have Oreo factory anymore. No, that door closed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying never. Well, on on that note. Yeah, if I do it again, Kate, actually, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. You know, I do want to get to a point where I do start printing again, but it will be for my own art 
really. Um, and in my design journey, when I kind of rock back up into that journey, it will be not, it'll be, I'll be at an age where I don't want to be commercial anymore. And at that point, I want to really push the boundaries. And if people like my work, they like it. If they don't, I don't care. And I'd really like... They would be printing as art rather than as a, yeah, as a yeah. product. And, 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 you know, using, yeah. pushing the boundaries again, you know, using different subjects, new technologies, layering different media, embroidery, painting on top of stuff, you know, like really pushing it to its creative max. I think that's that's where my personal private creativity, I hope we'll get to somewhere in our coach house here. We'll see. Um, but for the moment, I am, you know, work as, as myself within Textintel. I'm very happy to be the ambassador for FESPA and help support the print industry through all of their incredible opportunities um, and platforms too. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, natural, um, I don't know, print geek, I guess, Kate. It's awful, isn't it? I guess I am. <laughs> I love a geek. I can't help it. Print geek, just, sewing geek. It's in my DNA. I get them all on this yeah, podcast. It's, all my, da- it's my dad's <laughs> fault all of those years ago, I guess. Yeah, it's in my DNA. Oh, brilliant. Final question mm-hmm. then. Which UK manufacturer do you most admire? Oh, UK manufacturer. Could be anything, doesn't have to be prints. Could be any sort of UK manufacturer. Who do you most admire? I can't answer that question. My God, there are so many across so many different things. I think probably companies like Stanfast and Barracks, really, who have stood you know that and liberty and all of those companies you know who you know all of those super brands who have managed to survive the test of time really and hold on to their design integrity and also become the ambassadors for the future because they hold the textile knowledge that is so necessary to take the next generation on um on our printing and, and creative journeys so i guess yeah, it's, it's those companies, really. I don't think any one, one, one person, it wouldn't be fair. There are so many heroes in the textile industry, really. There are. So many heroes. You know, and it is tough. You know, everybody has ups and downs in this industry. It's no picnic. You know, whether you are a private family-owned company or a huge corporation, commerce is tough. And textiles always have been. So, um, yeah, I admire anybody who can... But exciting. Incredibly exciting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's a brilliant, you know. And I, you know, when we, when we had our print studio, I used to love, you know, I used to do a lot of um, trying to really help bring in a lot of placement students and internships and stuff like that to really help them um, understand production and understand new technology. And I, I've that's a huge part of my life. Um, I don't think I've ever forgotten the mentors I had. I had three great mentors in my early life. It's really hard to get your foot on the stepping stone. And I think all of us have to help the next generation as much as we possibly can. Um, and that their nature is to be naturally collaborative. Um, and I think we have to do that now more and more. And I hope that's very much where Textintel sits, really, and that it just unites the whole industry at whatever level to provide innovation, thought leadership and, and knowledge and opportunities. That's what we need, isn't it? Definitely for the future. Brilliant. What's the what's your web address for Textintel? Just so everyone it's, yeah, can it's, uh, take a note of it. It's T E X I N T E L Textintel.com. Brilliant. I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast. Oh, as well. thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful and very, very extremely knowledgeable guest. Really enjoyed well, that. Do- Debbie, thank I've you. I've been doing this a while. I'm happy to share my knowledge. <laughs> Take care, Kate. It's amazing. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there are bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.